Welcome to Composer Quest. I'm Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis, and I started this show to get inspiration and ideas from other music makers. You can hear all the episodes at ComposerQuest.com. This episode, I talk with film composer Will Vandekrummert. Will's a senior at St. John's University in Minnesota, my alma mater, and he just applied for film school at USC. I think Will has a great chance of getting in. He produces all his film scores in a humble basement studio by himself. But to my ear, they sound pretty much on par with Hollywood soundtracks. So I'm here with Will Vandekrummer. Will, welcome to Composer Quest. Good to be here. I'm stoked. Yeah. Just listening to your soundtracks that you've done, I feel like you really have gotten to learn the Hollywood language of music. I was listening to a piece you did. You took this video that World of Warcraft had put out as a trailer and right. added your own music to that. It was uh, like this battle going on between an ogre sort of guy and a human, and then all of a sudden this panda comes in and kicks both their butts. <laughs> Maybe you could describe that a little bit. Sure, sure. The World of Warcraft clip that you just described, that was something that I did for my final project this last semester for a cinematic composition class I took with uh, Brian Campbell, who you just interviewed for Composer Quest as well. When he was watching the clip, the first thing he said was, wow, there's a lot going on visually. Make sure that the music doesn't hide that. I started out as a pop musician, first and foremost. And as a pop musician, I think it's really common to sort of pick out idiomatic things that a lot of other artists do within their music. You know, I really love that progression, or I love that guitar riff, that drum fill, you know, really hit home for me. The Hollywood language, you know, it's it's a musical language in and of itself, just like you said. So I think you pick up on a lot of the idiomatic things that composers are doing. Just like any other genre, film music is something that's learned absolutely through imitation. To me, it's interesting, too, because I, I think you strike this balance well between, like, Mickey Mousing, as it's called, when right. someone's going up the stairs and you hear, dunk, dunk, dunk. Yeah, right. Um, or the xylophone hit for the yeah. eyes blinking, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's good to include those things, depending on the type of movie, but right. I think it's good to strike a balance between that and music that's just creating a mood. Absolutely. You know, you talk about Mickey Mouse, and that was something that uh, I have an instructor in the Twin Cities. He's the head of the comp department at McNally Smith. That was one thing that he really warned me against at the outset was, make sure you're not Mickey Mousing your cues, you know, because that's, for, for the first thing, I think it's sort of the tagline of the amateur is to do that. But also, you know, don't be too busy. Let the visual speak for itself. With that World of Warcraft video, it was interesting because I watched your version, and I watched the original video with the soundtrack. And it was cool to see you bringing out different things than the original did. How did you decide what cues to use? If I were to be perfectly honest with you, I never listen to the actual film cue if it's a practice clip. Ever, 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 ever. It's a great way to poison what you may have done creatively. Or you'll just end up, you know, imitating what's on the original cue. But as far as selecting specific sync points or visual hits, that goes a lot with the 
planning process right in the beginning. You know, what's going to be the most dramatically effective? Because you want to space your cues out far enough apart where you're not Mickey Mousing it, like you said, and you're not hitting so many things that it's starting to detract from the drama of what's going on visually. So I think I chose those sync points because it emphasized maybe something comical that was going on or it really was an important dramatic moment that sort of needed uh, some sort of musical punctuation. One tip I heard one time also was that if there's an emotional scene, you maybe hold off on adding the music until after the dialogue happens and then there's this time of reflection Mm -hmm. and then the music swells in. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. Well, now we're getting into a conversation about spotting, and that's still something that terrifies me. Oh, You know, so it is one of the most terrifying things on the face of the planet to watch a film without music and realize that you have to put something there. Uh, A decision about where to insert music is all about being a good spotter. That's the term that's used. That's something that comes with watching a lot of film and seeing what other composers are doing and trusting your instincts. I've heard some composers, after they get picture lock on something and they have the full video in their hands, they won't touch it for like a week. They'll just watch it. They really want the film to speak to them before they add any commentary musically whatsoever of their own on top of it. Me, I'm very mechanical the way I go about composing for a scene. I set up what's called a tempo map. And basically, um, you choose all the visual sync points or hits that you want to hit visually, and you set up this map where basically the tempo is altered to make the music fit what's going on visually. Essentially, your work is done when you set up your tempo map. All you have to do is write the music for it then. Again, another example of modern technology really helping out the modern composer, (laughs) making their job easier because, oh, geez, what people were doing, you know, it's just insane, you know, you have people, this theme for so many seconds, you know, at this tempo and trying to match things up that way. It was just a nightmare. And um, it's and they must have had just insane conductors, too. Oh, yeah. The conductors. <laughs> I mean, they still are insane. Oh, absolutely. Nowadays, yeah, they had to be really sharp that way. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to compose their first film score? Oh. <sighs> That's, that's hard, because, you know, I'm still starting out at two. So I suppose my advice would be be ambitious. <laughs> Do things that are bigger than you think that you can. My abilities as an orchestrator, for example, are not nearly as strong as my abilities as a producer. But um, if I were asked tomorrow to orchestrate cues for a film, I would absolutely say yes, because I know that I have at least enough of a foundation to start doing that sort of work, even though I'm not 100% confident in it. And a lot of this work is learned on the job through assistantships, you know, through trial and error and that sort of thing. So yeah, my advice would be absolutely push yourself, you know, see what you can do. Have some fun with it. Maybe we could talk about a specific piece of yours. Sure. Um, Maybe uh, Inside of the Enemy? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, that's one of the tunes that I sent off to USC for my application. And um, that song was the product of a conversation that I had with my composition instructor. And he was taking a listen to some of my other cues. And he said, you know, you've really sort of got that Hollywood sound down. You've proved to them in your application that you can fit that mold. Now do something different. I want you to go listen to some Stravinsky. I want you to mess with electronic sounds. I want you to mess with time signatures. I want you to push the threshold of tonality a little bit more. And I was like, oh, no, here we go. You know, because I'm very comfortable in my mold. 
So um, that was a challenge, but um, I started writing and the product of that was inside of the enemy. And you'll hear sort of influences, you know, much like what he told me to do. There's, there's a lot of metric modulation, much like there is in Stravinsky's work, like Rite of Spring, that sort of thing. And the really interesting thing is about that tune is that it's in seven. You know, you have this So it's kind of offsets you. Then there's this sort of um, breath of fresh air when you reach the large tutti section in which it's the main theme, you know, and that goes back to a more followable meter. Later on in the section, you have an electro breakdown with just this dirty synthesizer, and it modernizes it a little bit. So you do kind of a mix of film scoring and pop music. Mm -hmm. How do those different worlds combine for you, or do they? Oh, they're completely combined. You know, you have people like huge names, like James Newton Howard. He was playing keys for Elton John. People like Trevor Rabin, he did, you know, Armageddon and Enemy of the State, and he was playing guitar for Yes before he was doing that. Part of the reason that pop goes so well with sort of a film score idiom, well, first of all, you know, you learn all the fundamentals of music, your harmony and stuff like that. But um, you also learn the technology and the business behind it. And I think that's something that a lot of classical musicians don't always take the time to learn. And again, I'm generalizing, so I have to be careful. But pop music really taught me, you know, how to be comfortable behind a MIDI keyboard, how to work a condenser microphone, how do you mic a guitar amp, and how do you build something that's really solid from a compositional and an emotional standpoint. And all those things are tools that I use every day in the studio when I'm doing a cinematic score, too. Well, it's, it does seem to me like nowadays more film composers are in your spot, where they're self-produced, they can take an electric guitar and play a line, and it blends in with the orchestral recording. Yeah, that's a real common mold. It's really interesting. Anymore, you'll never have your orchestrator stand up in front of an orchestra without prelay tracks. So those are tracks that have been, you know, recorded in the studio beforehand. You know, whether that's, you know, a drum kit track or a guitar track. You look at a score like Hans Zimmer's Inception or something like that, and all the guitar work that's done throughout the entirety of that film was done in a studio. It wasn't done on the scoring stage. How are you, have you learned all these things about the film scoring process? Oh, are you God. reading books or watching I'm doing all sorts of things, Charlie. <laughs> it's probably an unhealthy obsession at this point. Uh, I love it so much. I'm looking up this stuff in my free time. You know, in my playtime and my work time. For people who are interested in reading, I think I suggested this text to you. Richard Davis's Complete Guide to Film Scoring is an excellent text. A little outdated at this point, but it's still a very good text. He's an instructor at Berkeley. There's one site, you've probably come across it, but Soundworks Collection. No! Oh, you got to check that out. It's like mostly geared towards sound designers, but they also interview composers and just great documentaries, short little documentaries about behind the scenes of these Hollywood films. Awesome. So I hope to see you on there someday. <laughs> With fingers crossed. I yeah. hope so. That'd be good. <laughs> Maybe we could talk a little bit about your pop music. Sure, yeah. That's, that's where it all started. <laughs> that was... um. 
And again, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about all the sorts of beginnings that I had. You know, we, we look back at how elementary some of our starting points were. Where did you start? Oh, geez. I was, <laughs> I was actually, maybe I haven't really come that far. <laughs> I started, you know, just uh, recording tracks in my basement. And I absolutely adored Adam Young and Owl City. That was, that was my jam in high yeah. school, you know. I think part of the reason that I loved that so much is because here's a guy who's sitting you know, in his case, in his parents' basement in Owatonna, Minnesota, by himself, making these enormous tracks, you know, and just absolutely dominating the pop world now. And I think that was a really sort of attractive musical idea to me, you know? So it's like, well, he did it. <laughs> I want to try this, you know? How do you approach writing... Um top 40 style song do you have any tricks for people or form 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 always watch your form you want to give i think if i'm not mistaken scientifically there's an endorphin that's released in the brain when you anticipate something in a song and it happens and that's through sort of this time-tested popular music form that's been fabricated and repeated throughout the years and so I usually try to stick to a form so there's enough listener expectation and gratification of that expectation and uh, I try to pick a genre from the outset sometimes it ends up somewhere in the middle of two uh, that's always something that really important that I try to do and finally if you get stuck writing lyrics I think one thing that I do most of the time is I ask myself you know geez well what is it that you want to say Stop thinking so hard. What is it you want to say and just say it? Have a clear message, but if you're top 40, make sure it's about having a good time, that it's fun, you know? <laughs> which, is un which is unfortunate, really, you know, because a lot of top 40 tunes, it's, there's a really empty message that's being pushed right now, and it doesn't have to be that way, you know? You can tell some really entertaining and unique stories, you know? I'm, I'm a big Macklemore fan, and for those people that don't know Macklemore, he's a hip-hop artist. He's got this tune. Everyone's listening to it right now, and it's played all over the radio thrift shop and uh it's all about sort of his entourage of of friends and characters that he brings in his music videos and they are they're gonna go have a good time at the thrift shop and so make sure that your tune's unique but you know it's still happy and go lucky that's a top 40 tune i did see an interesting stat though that somewhere they surveyed all the top 40 hits and 60 mm percent -hmm. were in a minor key ah which is like a total shift from the 60s, 70s. Uh-huh. And I don't know if that's just because of the influence of dubstep or hip-hop having minor key Well, songs, yeah. But I don't There's know. There's that sort of minor sound. You have a couple different influences coming into play. You've got rap and hip-hop. And at the same time, you have a really strong influence from electronic and techno and house music. And, you know, like you said, dubstep and two-step and drum and bass and all the stuff that we've imported from the UK. And I think those have really pushed that sound forward. I've gravitated more towards orchestral music as of late because I found that growing up and playing pop music, I'd sit in front of the piano and I would, I would really be in touch with that music. I'd feel it on a really deep level, you know, and there are times when, I'll admit it, I was, I'm sitting down at the piano and I'm almost crying, and I don't even know why. It's just the music moves you in, in a way that you can't quite explain. And um, more so in 
and in greater amounts, I think orchestral music has kind of taken that place. There's nothing that gets me quite like a string section swell, followed by a hard timpani hit with a suspended cymbal. You have quite a few good sounds that you use that sound like very professional orchestral, even though they are synths. How do you go about sound designing your compositions? Very carefully, <laughs> very carefully. When I'm sequencing a film cue or even a string section for a pop tune or something like that, my goal is always to try to make it sound as natural as I possibly can. A big reason that composers are able to do what they do so independently anymore is because of the samples and the technology that are kind of coming to the forefront. The sounds aren't so much synthetic anymore. It's a lot of sampled sounds from a live orchestra. An engineer will have orchestras playing one note at a time at different dynamic levels with different articulations, you know, and so you're developing basically an orchestra that you can bring with you to the park on your laptop computer. The orchestral software I use is called Symphobia. It's a Project Sam product, a tiny little company out of the Netherlands. But they push some really good sounds, and the way they record it, which is a little bit unique, is they'll record things on a sectional basis. So um, you've got a string section, and they'll record the entire section together. They'll do the same thing with brass, same thing with woodwinds, and then they'll do some sections that contain the entire orchestra. One patch, which is a string sustained section, might sound something like this, and this is just one guy producing all the sounds, and so it gives a lot of power to the composer. So this is very sort of rich and lush sound, you know? Then you have other sorts of sections, like uh, staccato violin sections. So you get sort of this, you know, very cinematic sound right out of the box, which is a lot of fun. Well, we're in your studio right we now. Are. That's kind of your exclusive studio here on campus. It makes me feel special. Yeah. <laughs> It brings me back to the days I was in here. Because you were here. We were I, just talking about that beforehand. How, yeah. how long has it been for you since you were in this room? Uh, it's been about five years almost. Okay. And yeah, I do remember sleeping on this floor some, some nights when I was working on my yep. senior project. Yep. It's surprising how much you can get done when you're in college. I don't know how I did that kind of stuff back then. Yeah, I've, I pulled one 20-hour session in school. I've never done that again, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, it, it is amazing how hard you can push yourself. I already feel like I'm getting old and I'm saying that at the age of 21, so I don't know what that says. I'm curious too how you manage your time as a composer. The timeline that you work under in a post-production schedule is just ridiculous. You have anywhere from 5 to 12 weeks to write anywhere from 30 to upwards of you know, 60, 70 minutes of music, and that's that's a lot of music. Fortunately, the business is sort of a well-oiled machine at this point, so you have people like orchestrators and composers' assistants and ghostwriters and project supervisors to make sure that that whole process runs smoothly. But still, it's, it's a lot of music. Getting faster what you, at what you do is always really beneficial. When I first started doing the sort of orchestrations that I'm doing on my MIDI keyboard, it took me a really long time. I think my first film cue which I just did a little exercise to, Spider-Man 3. 
I think that probably took me upwards of over 20 hours, without a doubt, and that was about two and a half minutes of music. Now, I think I'm getting close to matching industry pace, which is about uh, 12 hours for three minutes of recorded and produced music. My goal with this project was to do 45 minutes of music a month. Mm -hmm. But now that you say 12 hours to every three minutes of music, that might be off the charts for the month. You, you le- well, yeah. Well, let's see. If you're composing at that pace, see, this is why I'm a music major. I don't do numbers. <laughs> <laughs> How do you stay motivated as a composer? What drives um, you? The music. And I know that's a cliche answer, and I know that everyone says that, but it's really the music, and it's sort of this perpetual sense of dissatisfaction when you're looking at your computer screen and knowing that it's not done yet. It's that drive to fill the page, so to speak, and put sort of your artistic voice and vision and your personal stamp on a project. I've had a couple of realizations, I think, as of late that have been really important ones. As I start, you know, sort of looking to my future and and trying to make contacts with people that I think would be helpful to me, I think there was something I neglected very early on, and that's the importance of a creative friendship in any working relationship. Um, I think some of the people I contacted, there was this question in my mind of, you know, what could they end up doing for me professionally? Could this result in an, an assistantship or something like that? We'd be fooling ourselves if we said those weren't important questions. But I think the most important thing to keep in mind is what sort of work can you create with this person? Who is this person beyond their talents, beyond their film credits? And I think we really have to make sure that we don't simultaneously sell ourselves short because we're complex beings beyond just who we are musically, you know, and what our talents represent. And I think that's important to remember and recognize too. So networking is hugely important, but make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Maybe we'll have to have you back on again after your experiences at USC. Absolutely. I'm sure you're going to learn a ton about the music business. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to exchange a couple emails with the head of the department. His name's Dan Carlin. He told me that even at USC, you know, one of the most prestigious film schools on the face of the planet, they're gearing their education towards young composers to get them assistantships because any more that is the doorway into the industry is, you know, (laughs) either vacuuming a composer's floor or doing some ghost writing from them. A composer that I just talked to in L.A., he spent some of his first assistantship picking the composer's kids up from school. You know, so anything I was told um, by him, anything that you can do to make yourself indispensable to that individual is in your best interests. Really make their career shine, and it will spell good things for your professional career as well. Well, I think that wraps it up, Will. Thanks so much for being. Thanks for. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thanks so much for being in your studio here <laughs> so that I could come and visit you. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. It's been Absolutely. Great talking to you. Thanks, Charlie. Well, that's the episode with Will Vandekrummer. Best of luck to him as he goes out to California. If you want to check out more of Will's music, you can go to willvandekrummert.com. That's Will Van D E C R O M M E R T.com. And if you don't like spelling things, you can always search for this episode on composerquest.com. I'll leave you with part of a piece by Will called The Rainstorm Quartet.